Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, when we were kids, the old scare story was that if we did anything wrong, it would go on our permanent record. Uh, it took us, well, took some of us at least quite some time to realize that there was no such thing as a real permanent record. Uh, but that was back when I was a kid. Today, there actually is something that seems like uh, a semi-permanent record in terms of the stuff that you put online that stays there forever. And in some cases, that can lead to perhaps a fair bit of embarrassment. Uh, now, there are some people who argue that this just means that future generations will learn not to put too much stock into the things that people said in the past. Uh, but as we've seen in quite a few stories recently involving people being publicly shamed by things that they said on social media years ago, it doesn't appear that most people are so accepting of the excuse that everyone has their uh, youthful indiscretions online. Uh, so, as we've discussed on a previous podcast, uh, this is possibly why, at least I think, Snapchat took off the way that it did, uh, with its initial success mostly focused on a younger demographic, and that was because, unlike many other platforms, it mostly didn't contribute to the public record, and that allowed people to be, in some ways, more true to themselves and perhaps worry a bit less about how their future selves might be viewed. But there's also an issue of the general historical record. Uh, certainly some things get destroyed and some stuff was never meant to be uh, kept around. But having historical letters and documents has always been really valuable as well. And maybe personally valuable to anyone looking back over what they said or did or photographed or witnessed many years ago. And this is an issue that's actually pretty important and really hasn't received that much detailed thought, I think, uh, as it's basically so far been up to the whims of whoever controls the various platforms that, that has all this content. So to discuss this concept of the digital perm permanent record and what should be done and should we keep stuff or should we get rid of stuff, we have two excellent guests who have both been on the podcast in the past, uh, multiple times, in fact, but never together. Uh, so first, we've got uh, lawyer Kathy Gellis, who spends much of her time trying to think through the various thorny legal questions concerning innovation and how it impacts society. And we've got Parker Higgins, uh, who currently currently works at the Freedom of the Press Foundation, working on a variety of special projects, uh, including a project to help archive news sites that were at risk of disappearing, uh, thus preserving an aspect of uh, at least part of the permanent record. But uh, more recently, he actually wrote a post on his personal site suggesting a different sort of approach that at least Twitter might want to take, uh, one that would allow users to hide but not delete old tweets, potentially protecting those tweets from someone going through them to find clips to take things out of context with, but not, uh, but not in a way that would delete those tweets permanently. Uh, I think that this discussion will end up being much broader 
talking about all these different things related to the permanent record. But Parker, let's start with uh, your proposal. Can you, I guess, just uh, give a quick summary beyond what I did and, and explain sort of, you know, what was your thinking in coming up with that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and thanks for having me on. Um, so on on the one hand, it's just basically a feature request. It's uh, <laughs> there. I, you know, a lot of people have written about why they've chosen to delete all their old tweets. Um, but in my case, and in many cases, uh, you know, this represents a decade of, of uh, writing and thinking. And you know, obviously not every tweet is, is valuable, but there's, uh, there's conversations that I had maybe six or seven years ago that I don't want to uh, get caught up in that in, in a mass delete. Right. Um, and it, over the course of that time, I've been, you know, quoted in news articles and things like that, where this stuff that I've put online uh, has has become part of the web, part of the, the broader web. And, you know, it's got a URL and people have accessed it over an API and it's embedded in things. And I don't want to break all of that. Um, and I understand the uh, the desire to go back and delete everything that the value of that permanent record uh, has been, <laughs> the value hasn't always been apparent and the costs have been extremely obvious in the last couple of weeks um, and months, especially. Uh, but I think that if, if there were a way to configure this uh, a um, in a, in a non-permanent way. So, you know, cause when you delete a tweet, it's gone, it's just gone forever um, for your purposes. Uh, and then, so so the the non permanence is a big part, and then then like a, a per uh, post configuration. And on the one hand, small feature request is just you know I I'm as if I'm on the product team at, at Twitter. <laughs> on the other hand, I, I I think that when you think about these sorts of things, um, it brings up bigger questions about things like this permanent record and and questions of of privacy and and publicity and and public. Uh, conversations, and so I, I I was hoping to be a little provocative, but I'm also certain <laughs> that this is the right way to do things. <laughs> That's not uh, provocative at all. <laughs> hey, um, and uh, one thing that people say, so this is, uh, um, Instagram has a feature just like this, and I think Instagram discovered I in in some of the launch articles. Uh, and I don't know how much credence to put in this. Um, people talked about Instagram, the company, discovering that they were losing value because in in people deleting their old posts or posts that had underperformed. Right. Um, and yeah, and in the case of Instagram and and sort of Twitter too, uh, not only like your individual posts are objects that live at URLs and and such, but they also have a relation to other things. And so like replies go to that. Um, post and and in in the case of of uh, Twitter, you know, retweets are connected to that post, and so when you delete it, you're pulling something out of a, a connected system. Um, and so yeah, it's like the Instagram feature. I just think Twitter should have it too. Okay, the the um, I mean, in terms of the like, you know, if you're pulling it out of things where people have embedded it or or quoted it. You know, some people respond, you know, Twitter sort of designed the embed feature so that it has sort of a, a failover mode, which is if the tweet has disappeared, it still actually retains the text, right? Yeah, and that's that was that was clever. Um, 
and it also it's it's future proof in the sense that you know twitter.com won't always exist how um, dare you say such be, a thing <laughs> i know but there will be embedded tweets that outlive uh twitter.com and so uh, now the the instance in which we see that failover is when uh is when the tweet's been deleted um uh but you know, one right. day we'll start seeing that when, when Twitter.com is inaccessible. Right. You know, you can even imagine in countries where Twitter.com is inaccessible, that failover works. Right. And it's, yeah, it's good. But, you know, you also lose the context of replies to that or, or to see how popular that, um, that sentiment was or things like that. And you can try to enumerate all of the, all of the reasons why there's value to keeping this post up at at a given url um but the point of introducing an option that that isn't deleting is because it's it's very hard to actually enumerate all the things that provide value sure that in fact you you might discover later like oh i wish i i wish i remembered the first thing that i sent to mike um and you know maybe i Maybe I can have that if if I've got the archive, but if I've just deleted everything, even though I didn't think of that in advance, it, right. it might be something that's valuable to me now. Though, I mean, if you if you do hide it, you do still you would then still lose the connectivity of the replies and and all of that other stuff. It's just that you could potentially bring it back at some point. Right, and you could see. So, like, um, uh, my brother actually sent me, <laughs> um, somewhat. Uh, so. You know, we're discussing this obviously in the context of um, of uh, Sarah Jong being the the target of the this most recent round of right. um, what I what oh, I've called uh, bad faith spelunking through uh, through tweet archives. And one of the things was a reply to my brother that people were retweeting, um, and he he had deleted the thing to which she was which she was replying, and he actually doesn't know what she was talking about and he's curious and yeah he, he sent this to me asking if i knew what what he meant right and the and you know maybe maybe it was nothing of value but it's kind of sad to see this thing that could have been preserved and wasn't because uh there there was no option between leaving it as a as a as a you know aspect of your permanent record or just getting rid of it altogether yeah and i've definitely seen that in in terms of like when I've gone back to old tweets for this reason or that and, and found that, you know, whatever they were replying to has been deleted and is gone. And, you know, you're just sort of trying to remember what happened. And it's, it does feel a little strange. It does yeah. feel and, a little And you could just, strange. I mean, there's a world where you just don't have this uh, archive sure. at all. And I think one of the, one of the, uh, one of the things that one of the like kinds of responses to this post that made me laugh was um, a lot of people say like, well, this is about transparency and it's about knowing what someone really thinks. And it's like, I mean, if you're, if you're worried about if the only way that you can assess somebody is going through an archive of their utterances to see whether there's been a racist thing in there, like you're gonna, there's a lot of stuff you're missing. Right. Like we don't, record every conversation at you know coffee shops and and in you know behind closed doors for good reason and i'm not saying that these things are exactly the same but it's like you can there are a lot of ways that you can learn who somebody is um frequently they'll tell you right. uh without having access to like a a 
complete and untampered with archive of a certain type of communication. Yeah. But that's, that's the thing that, like, in theory, derails the whole conversation and makes it moot. If we lived in a world where there were adequate critical thinking skills, we wouldn't be having these discussions. It, if, we, if, if there was more media literacy, if there were more critical thinking skills, if people actually knew you know, how to weight utterances and view them in context or presume context or not over-presume certain context, uh, we wouldn't have the controversy. And then maybe it wouldn't even be as important about what we're culling or hiding or deleting or not deleting. Um, we're sort of in a, you know, trying to come up with a technical solution to figure out what the pros and cons are of the better technical solution, even if it's even possible, because we're trying to route around a problem that is really the, the problem at hand. People don't necessarily know how to weigh information. They're making a mistake more than likely when they go back and spelunk for old tweets and trying to use that as defining the character of the person before them now. That's a questionable um, intellectual exercise, but we end up tying ourselves in knots rather than trying to encourage more people to not to do that. We're trying to react to that with a technical solution. And it, it's frustrating because why do we have to put a Band-Aid on something that shouldn't have been a problem like that in the first place? Well, what, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? I'm not, I'm, I'm not entirely sure I follow why you said it shouldn't have been a problem in the first place, Kathy. I mean, how people want to react to old tweets where they're kind of what Parker was describing about that they're, you know, trying to take the measure of a character not based on information that, well, actually, I think he said in the reverse. First of all, the archive, the information available to them is going to be incomplete. So you can't necessarily, if you've got person A and person B and you want to figure out who you're going to like better, um, you know, if you find an old sort of questionable tweet for person A, does that mean that person B is better because you don't know what ephemeral conversations have been lost to history and they may have been really some doozies? So first of all, you can't draw a very good and you, you can't presume to have access to all the information you might use to use historical information to draw a conclusion now. But the second question is context, where you've got a person before you and you, if you feel the need to make a value judgment, you've got a lot more contemporary information available for you to make a better decision. And that's not what people are hanging their hats on. People are of the belief that if they go back and look at these 140 character utterances out of context, they're going to be able to draw a picture of the character of that person. And that's a questionable um, assumption. Yeah. I agree with that. I think that I think it's it's been pretty uh, in a, in a number of of cases, especially recently, where we've seen this kind of uh, spelunking through the archive. Um, it it's it's just conducted in bad faith. Where I think you're being, I think it's actually generous to say that it's it's they're not thinking critically. Um, they're just not thinking at all or they're not you know they're not doing the thinking that they're uh presenting themselves as thinking and so you know specifically in the case of of sarah john you have people um who are uh purportedly outraged about racism and this is the first uh the the first context in which racism has ever bothered them in many cases mm -hmm. um and so it's not so much that uh it's you know it's easy enough to reply to uh or to respond to um specific you know, statements that people are making where 
as if they're just not thinking it all the way through. Um, I think what we're seeing is more not that it's not like underthought, it's that it's intentionally malicious and it's intentionally, um, I've, I've said it several times now, but conducted in bad faith and it's, it's intentionally, uh, it's, it's impervious to correction because it's not something where they're right. trying to get it right. It, well, it's, so, a, it's a quest for the aha moment and then they're finding something that they can make an aha moment out yeah. of it. So, so there are a couple of things. That, one, just in case some of our listeners are not aware, and, and I, I sort of deliberately didn't include Sarah and her situation in the, the opening. I didn't want the podcast to, to just focus on that, but it is, it, you know, it certainly is part of the larger context for this discussion. And so just for people who are listening who don't happen to know what happened, um, Sarah Zhang, who is someone that, that all three of us know pretty well in, in some cases and who has been on this podcast in the past, um, recently was hired by the New York Times to be on the editorial board um, and to, to cover technology issues, which she's more than qualified for uh, and and is an excellent addition um, to the New York Times. And um, in part, I think, well, for a variety of reasons, I'm not going to start to speculate on why, but um, people went sort of trolling through all of her Twitter, Twitter history, um, dug out a, a bunch of tweets um, very much out of context and presented it as if she were a racist. Uh, and that got picked up on by lots and lots of people uh, and has created a, a, a huge mess. Now, I should say, uh, and again, I don't want this whole podcast just to be about that particular situation because I, I, I think there's a, a broader discussion to be had. Um, you know, that we we know that the people who sort of started that process of, of digging up those tweets did so very much in bad faith and, and have been positioning it in bad faith and continue to do so. That said, many people who, um, are, you know, don't have, you know, ill will towards her or, or doing it in bad faith have picked up on it. And I've had discussions with, with multiple people who I consider close friends and who I know and trust, um, but all of whom don't know Sarah, um, who seem very angry at me for, for claiming that this was done in bad faith and that it is misleading and out of context. And so I've, uh, I would say, used an awful lot of time <laughs> over the past week or two, um, you know, you know, trying to explain to people how context works. <laughs> and, and one thing, one thing that I've actually noticed, which I think is kind of an interesting aside on this is, you know, what some people have res responded with is, is the idea that like, well, if you look at these tweets and you go back, there's like, they're not responses to anything. And I, and I was trying to explain like context has a lot more to do with, you know, everything else that's happening, the, the news that's happening, you know, right then that day that everybody else is discussing or, um, you know, the general mood or a whole bunch of other things beyond just like which tweets you're replying to. And, you know, for people who, you know, all three of us have followed Sarah on, on Twitter and interacted with her for, for, for years, many, many years, um, you know, we sort of recognize that all of us will tweet things, you know, not in direct reply to things, but that are 
um, very much referring to an issue or a concept or something that lots of people are discussing. Um, and, you know, without that context, they probably don't make much sense. Um, and in some cases probably could be interpreted in a, in a bad or, or uh, misleading way if somebody had the ill intent to do so. So that's, I think, the, the larger framing. Um, yeah. May I, may I pivot on that context sure. uh, question for a second? So, yeah, I similarly <laughs> uh, am not interested in, in uh, defending any particular tweets on this, <laughs> right. on this uh, show or whatever. Um, uh, one thing that I think about with context a lot um, is uh, I, I, you, you are familiar, uh, <laughs> but your listeners are presumably familiar with Cory Doctorow. Um, mm-hmm. A, who, among other things, writes science fiction. And one thing that I, I love that he's described many times is his the tools that he uses for writing. Um, he has a uh, for you know for writing prose. This is for writing fiction. Um, he uses a toolkit that involves uh, automated Git commits every um, every couple of minutes. So he has uh, he talks about this in the context of he can see all of his drafts and he can see the way that stuff got added to the drafts and stuff like that, um, which, you know, for his own personal history is interesting. And he says, you know, if, if anyone ever wants to write a biography, this will be interesting. But just for me to look back on, I like. Um, but one thing that I love about it is it doesn't just commit his, uh, his like, the words that are on the page. It also um, adds to the commit information about where he physically is. Uh, it adds to the commit um uh, the most recent things that he's published on Boing Boing, which is a blog that he, he co-writes, um, and the weather and a few other things, you know, what music is playing. And you can imagine, like, when you're reading one of his books, um, you might, like, it might be, like, there's a world where you're like, I wonder what what brings you into this headspace? You know, right. how, how, did, how did you get here? And that sort of thing is something that you that's valuable if you... Um, that you can really get a lot out of if you are recording it and you've got a way to look back on it. Um, and it's, that's, so, I mean, I think about, um, to, to bring it back to the context of deleting tweets and a permanent record, you could say like the tools are configurable enough where you could say, okay, I want to delete all my old tweets except for conversation. So like replies and anything, you know, like this one particular thread that was very important to me and maybe one or two other things. But what you can't think to save is like these things that are just contextual. So like, what did the tweets look like the week? What did my tweets look like the week after I started dating my significant other or something like that? Right. And, and you know, that that's not on the site and that isn't even necessarily something that anyone else knows, but it's interesting to look back and it's valuable to look back. I guess and on some level, what I'm <laughs> like, the reason that I am passionate about this argument is because I think people should write more. I think people should, <laughs> you know, I, I, I just think I like loved uh, the existence of blogging and stuff. And I just, I want people to do that. And if the way people are doing that is 140 characters at a time, I want them to be able to keep that and get the value out of that, that I got out of, of blogging when I did that more. And that's I, I do mention that in the post is that over the over the ten years that I've had Twitter, there's been periods where I've written you know essays every week just because I was an active blogger at the time, and there's been long periods where I haven't done that. And 
I know more about myself in those years where I was writing more about what I was thinking. And it's, and it, and you know, it's nice to know about yourself. You, you learn and you, and you improve and you get better and you, uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I, Mike, I don't, uh, I don't expect, you know, what it's like to not write, uh, (laughs) 50,000 words a week, but, (laughs) but for those of us that don't, uh, for those of us that don't, you know, it's like, memory is fickle and and it's you know you think you are you think you remember what you were thinking and what you were like and what you you know what you uh right after you set down uh a book that became your favorite book but you read it for the first time like what you thought of it um but you know you don't and if you don't write it down you lose it and if you get rid of everything because people can weaponize it against you then you lose that value too and I'm afraid that people don't realize that until it's too late. I think there's something else with what Twitter has been helpful for and blogging too, um, although Twitter seems to have been much more accessible, I think, for a lot of people than blogging. Um, blogging has much more of a commitment. The thing has to be rounded out. It takes more time. With Twitter, it was so easy that you could have an idea and you could give voice to it so easily, so casually. And that's why I think a lot that's why we like tweets. That's why we like writing them. We like consuming them. And it gives us a chance to learn out loud, which can sometimes be a really effective way of developing and focusing your thoughts. The problem is, is it's an evolutionary process. You've started at one point, you're going to get to another point inherently through the use of the medium. And to have people come and judge you based on the beginning of the journey and not like a further end point um, does seem like people are not getting what it is that they're actually consuming. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's a valid point. It's just sort of the difference between like a conversation versus like, you know, a well thought out essay to some extent. Um, and Twitter. I mean, people use the medium a... in all sorts of ways. I mean, there are people sure. who, um, you know, especially when you can do those threads where you have some expertise and you can develop an idea. And those ideas are basically, if you glued them all together, you would have had a blog post. Those are interesting. Those are exciting. Those are sure. usable pieces of information that get passed around and shared. But sometimes it's more conversational. And sometimes it's, I'm not the person. I mean, I went back before we did this to look at when I joined Twitter, apparently like 10 years ago. And I have like 128,000 tweets. I'm probably not the same person I was at the time that I was tweeting the things in 2009 that I am today. Um, I think that should be something we inherently understand about people, but I'm not entirely sure that as we, you know, consume the archives for gotcha purposes, that that's necessarily what's going on. Yeah. I mean, there is also some aspect of like, you know, just the value and sort of understanding the times from like, you know, sometimes I sort of think about it from a, you know, if we shoot out 50, 100 years in the future, and we want people to look back and understand what the, you know, what people were talking about today, you know, we're thinking about and, and sort of how will that be viewed? And, and, you know, this sort of weird thought bubble occurred to me, which is like, you know, what would, you know, we do have like, you know, letters and conversations that, you know, the, the correspondences between like, you know, the, the people who, you know, the, the, the founders of the, of the United States. Right. And so we get some insight into what they were thinking, but we don't have their, you know, direct personal conversations and things like that. And, and if you could just imagine like what, you know, what would the world have been like, or what would we know about 
the world if they had had you know a system like a Twitter to to have these discussions and to hash out some of the things that they were thinking of you know would we have a, a better view into how the American Revolution went down for example um, yeah I I think sometimes too about uh, also the other side of that um, and uh, in particular this um, so Daniel Sola the the privacy scholar has uh -huh. uh, this point um, that uh, he's written about a number of times over the years about um, like Kafka threats and Orwell threats that <laughs> right. we are right. That, that we think about um, Orwell style threats of a totalitarian government, you know, targeting you in particular and cracking down on you and because of your uh, particular beliefs and, um, and that, and he started saying this uh, 15 years ago or so, you know, it's where we've been going, but that the, the pernicious problem are, are these Kafka threats that if there's just enough data collected about you, enough things you've said, uh, you know, the <laughs> Cardinal Richel, you famously said six lines uh, is enough to get someone hanged. But, um, you know, Kathy has 120,000 tweets or whatever. Like right. there's something in there that we're <laughs> out of context. Um, uh, and, and it's funny because if you think, if you think in terms of Kafka threats, you go like, well, I, and, and I do this in other parts of my life. Like I don't use a, 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 uh, I use cash where I can and I don't use a grocery store, um, loyalty card because like, I don't really want there to be a record of all my grocery store purchases. No good reason. I just don't, you know, right. I, I'm like worried about that Kafka threat. Um, but then I also like this record which produces value for me and I like writing and I like publishing that writing and then I think you know Kafka wanted all his works destroyed when he when he died right. he wanted his works burned and like the reason that we know the reason that we can articulate a Kafka threat and we've got these really powerful stories of it is because he failed at destroying his permanent <laughs> record <laughs> right and so, like, I don't know, that's like a perfect Kafka twist there. It's like <laughs> the only way, the only reason we've got this metaphor is because he wasn't actually able to do the thing that we should do if we should do it. I don't know. It's just, it's just a weird, <laughs> it, it twists around on itself. I mean, I think one of the questions that we wrestle with, and maybe this is part of the critical thinking question, is when are we cooked as a person? When are we the person we are going to come to be? And I was thinking about what Mike was just saying about like, well, we don't know so much about our Revolutionary War founding fathers. And I think actually we may know more. It's just that the letters and correspondence are in archives. Because I think at that time people were prolific. They were just prolific in a different medium. And I'm thinking about a documentary I saw about um, Lin-Manuel Miranda writing um, Hamilton and how he found this correspondence between Hamilton and Burr where they were just tearing each other to shreds and it was a flame war by postal service. And he actually found all of this and he could glean from it and he could write his characters as rounded characters where he understood more about them than other than just the, the, um, the, the historical pieces and events of their life. Um, but I guess the question is, you know, we get in this habit of like looking back at our founding fathers and we deem them to be heroes in some way and we put them on pedestals. And, you know, when was George Washington? Maybe not George Washington. Maybe, when was he a boy? When did he learn? When did he make mistakes? How did he process through the mistakes? We might actually have a record to 
figure that out. I don't know what correspondence has been left behind, but we don't think to look at it. We sort of regard certain people as if the person we've known them at one stage of their life was the person they were through the entire expanse of their life. And I'm not entirely sure. I think that's the critical thinking thing where, never mind bad faith, I think that's a shortcoming in how we assess particularly public personas. We're not very tolerant to the evolution of a character. Um, at the same time, you know, you're an adult. Um, once you're 18, the stuff you do is your permanent record, would be your permanent record. You're entering into contracts. You're starting to vote. You're doing things. You're interacting in the world in a meaningful and permanent way. And you're a potent person. And it matters how you're a potent person interacting with the world. And it may be fair to judge how you are a potent person interacting with the world. But maybe we just need more mercy to understand that it, there's a growth process and that who you were at 21 should not be who you are at 31, 41, 71. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that um, you're right. I think we we do have a lot of trouble thinking that, and, and you know, the only times where it comes through are when there's some sort of you know huge change, whether it's like the redemption story or the fall from grace story, right? I mean, the you know, and those are like when somebody goes to sort of polar opposites, and it, it sort of ignores the fact that we're sort of always on a you know constantly changing um you know about about a whole bunch of things and and i do wonder too if and this goes into a whole different area um you know i i feel like sometimes uh, you know the the whole thing that that people discuss on social media where it sort of makes people feel like they sort of have to dig in and almost stick to their positions um because any sort of change then is seen as as I don't know whether it's weakness or, or, or something else. And if that can in some way, I mean, how could we ever take you seriously if you ever changed your mind? I think, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know if that's, that's the point either, but, um, it, it does feel, I, I mean, so, so, you know, I, in the opening, I started out by talking about this idea of, you know, and, and some people have argued this pretty, pretty strongly that eventually, you know, people sort of get used to the fact that everyone, you know, when they were teenagers or, you know, in high school, or whatever, they would post stupid stuff on, on whatever social media or, you know, whatever they used at the time. And sooner or later, people get used to the fact that like, you know, if somebody is running for Senate and they, you know, did something stupid when they were 14, people aren't going to make a big deal out of it. But I'm wondering if that's actually true or not, or if we're sort of predisposed to, to want to try and find anything to sort of attack people with. <laughs> so is... I have a theory maybe, um, which is the world is a complex place. And I think one of the things we might be seeing play out before us is thanks to the internet, we have access to information that the whole world is at our fingertips. If, some, if a tree falls in a forest somewhere on the other side of the world, we have the capacity to know about it. And we end up with an information overload because we're dealing with a complex world with complex systems that we don't necessarily have the tools to really understand and we're getting it all at once. And the world is becoming a very, very scary place because there's a lot of information overload, which I think people have talked about a little bit. So I think it, it prompts the shortcuts that people tend to take, which is to look for to distill things into black and white and to look for the heroes and to look for the good guys and to basically take everything that as it comes to you and do an immediate characterization is as good as it's bad, is as good as it's bad. So you can just sort of filter through and 
have some sense of what conclusions to draw and which team to root for and where to look for shelter from a very complicated universe. And I think that may go into some of the judgmental things because it, we're not comfortable with this idea that, well, people may be good and bad, that issues may have shades of gray, they have, may have nuance. That's hard. That requires a lot more brain space and faith in much more ephemeral things that everything will be okay. And I think if you have basically all of discourse ending up getting funneled into what's essentially a rounding error of black or white or good or bad, Democrat, Republican, red, blue, whatever, um, I think it does prompt the shortcuts and then prompts the judgmentalness around, you know, there's a person before you. Now you have to assess, are they good or are they bad? Are we going to root for them or trust them or are we not? And nobody seems to feel comfortable really taking the time to either understand or just not worrying about it and not finding it necessary to characterize everything as good or bad in any sort of pure sense. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, we actually brought that up on, or I brought that up almost the, the same exact point, but not not as eloquently as you, Kathy. That was great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, about like just this sort of, you know, inability to have nuance in, in conversations these days. Um, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately and sort of trying to, to think about how do we, you know, is, is there a way to sort of short circuit that that element that we, we seem to all have to, to go towards the sort of black and white extremes and not recognize, I mean, I mean, you said in that description, like not everything is black and white. And I think I think an even more important point is the idea that like, almost nothing is black and white right? Right. and then and almost everything is is a is a you know some level of gray and you know it may lean one way or lean the other but that area of gray uh that area that includes an awful lot of nuance and that area that includes a, an awful lot of stuff that is both good and bad and you know every level in between is is so massive and yet you know for a variety of reasons perhaps you know evolutionarily you know, perfectly reasonable reasons, we, you know, we sort of have to, to lump everything into, um, you know, into a category of, of good or bad. And, and we certainly see it, you know, and it, this has been, it, it's within this context that I've been thinking about it, just like the whole political space these days. And, and, you know, whether, you know, people argue whether it's worse now or worse in the past or whatever, but, but the level to which, you know, people are just sort of being categorized and and lumped in as you know irredeemable awful you know purely evil um it's that's that's worrisome um but that's also you know and and so you know but i don't know where that takes me with, with regards to the discussion that we're that we're supposed to be having having about the permanent record because if that's if it's true that people can't like if we're sort of, you know, uh, evolutionarily unable to consider nuance across a broad category of situations, then, you know, you know, then then is it better not to have that permanent record, right? Because, you know, I'd like to believe and I want to believe that that we can sort of grasp nuance and and complex issues and recognize that that almost nothing is is good or bad and and in theory having the sort of this permanent record available in which you could explore and 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 begin to understand these nuances should be a good thing um but but if if nobody does then what does that say but of course yeah. I, but i use an extreme there in saying nobody because obviously some people do sorry go ahead parker well i i think it's i i think it's tempting 
a little bit to reverse the cause and effect here to okay. say that dis- so we say we see these we see people uh and in many cases people uh, groups that seem like large groups of people although <laughs> it's not always clear that it's actually um a lot of, a lot of people it could just be loud people uh coming to these snap judgments and appearing to base that on uh a you know, cursory scan or an out of context look at someone's permanent record. Um, when I think it's, I think it's pretty clear when you, when you actually look at what they're doing, that they're just going to the permanent record to confirm something they already believe. Right. Uh, they're looking, they're cherry picking evidence. And if you, and that's why it doesn't, I, I mean, I don't know if, if, uh, I don't know how much you've talked to people <laughs> online about this, but for the most part, corrections don't work because they're not it's it's not like i have taken in this evidence right and i have come to this conclusion it's i've come to the conclusion and i found these uh pieces of evidence to support it enough wait people but do i've that, already come to the conclusion people do that online so, really yeah <laughs> right exactly and so like i think if you if you reverse that and you say oh people are just sloppy about the way they're looking at archives but they're still making this they're arriving at this conclusion based on looking at the archives sloppily then it's tempting to say oh i don't want them to be sloppy so i'm not going to give them this opportunity right uh but the thing about like the 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 sort of campaigns they're engaging in is they'll use anything i mean they're like once you've arrived at this conclusion you kind of need evidence, but you kind of don't. And that's like, uh, <laughs> you know, people could be like, it just seems like these archives uh, can be used to bad ends and they can also be used to good ends. Uh, but the kind of people that are using them to bad ends are uh, are going to be like using whatever they can find. I think that's right. probably so, true. Right. And so, like, but nothing can replace, like, you know, in Emily Dreyfus's piece um, about uh, deleting tweets uh, on Wired that she put up, she talked about um, her brother live tweeting her <laughs> uh, when she when she was giving birth. Her brother was in a bar next to the hospital and, like, live tweeted it. And nothing can replace that stream of tweets for her. You know, that sort of thing that particular like the family history of these you know and they were they're uh likely stupid jokes and like but that has value to her and to no one else and nothing else is like that you know it's just this it's this one little memory whereas like for the bad actors anything works as evidence to confirm something that they're gonna believe no matter what and so it just it feels like uh it it feels like if you if you think of your permanent record as something that is going to be used against you and so you better get rid of it without thinking about like all the value it brings then you, you it just feels like cutting off your your nose to spite your face and it's not also not going to work well it's also it's so, essentially a heckler's veto as well that why are we i mean i think that was the point i was trying to get at earlier, why are we tying ourselves up in knots because of bad actors who are doing 
handling themselves badly in the modern world, whether malevolently or ignorantly or, or, or whatever, um, it feels like it should not be the basis by which we make decisions about internet tools and internet speech. On the other hand, from a user perspective, um, you know, that's very nice. There's these big issues that we can kick around on podcasts, but if you're under attack, um, you may want to just cut and run, and why shouldn't you have the technical ability to control your archive? Uh, but it's just, it's such a shame that, like, the bad actors end up driving the technical discussion and end up overwhelming all of the positive reasons to retain and build these archives of the human condition. Um, and it's this is not the only area that it shows up at. I mean, this was Google versus Garcia. This was people not consuming information carefully, drawing conclusions that about a person, ruining her life based on those on those uh, those conclusions. And then Judge Kaczynski basically looking like I want to give this woman a remedy, and so he broke copyright law to do it. Um, but you can certainly understand why he was why he felt like justice required something that this woman to have some tool to control what was happening to her life based on this expression that was being left behind. Um, but then again, it caused all this damage that was gonna censor so much more, so much more value if, if they were able to give her that remedy. So we've seen this before, this isn't just Twitter. Yeah, well, I mean, to, I think to some extent, like, you know, this is something that we come across over and over again, which is it's it's often very, very easy to to, both picture and quantify the downsides to any particular technology and often much harder to to really comprehend um, and certainly to quantify the benefits, even though they are often much broader and much you know larger and more powerful uh, on, on the upside. I think we also, before we escape this, we have to talk about the, there's always a tweet phenomenon. <laughs> that um, there, there is a, sometimes a very clear value in being able to see the legacy information of people who end up coming to have a lot of power over our lives. Um, you know, these are the cases where the inquiry and their character might actually make sense and be appropriate because they're going to have a lot of power and you might want to see some indicia about how that power will be wielded. Um, but, you know, if he had deleted them before he ran for the nomination, you know, no harm, no foul. What does it mean? And still, what can we construe about the old tweets vis-a-vis, you know, what he's actually doing now? Yeah, I, I mean, I, this is another uh, discussion that I don't think uh, we need to get <laughs> yeah. into. But, Tune in for the next I mean, can of worms. Who, you know, he took out full-page ads to to declare his racism like we didn't right. i didn't need a tweet but but yeah the, like if had he deleted those tweets and and this was the other the other kind of response that um that people had uh when i to to my blog post uh is like oh what about public figures and i get that um and i understand kathy that you're saying like before i mean he's been a public figure for a long right. time yeah. but before he was a politician um and i personally think it's really important to track the statements of, of politicians and public figures. Um, and, and in fact, I think it's so important that we should not be relying on Twitter.com's architecture. Um, and and you can find, you can download now entire archives of every tweet that, that Donald Trump's ever posted. And if he decides to delete them all in, you know, say a fit of rage after uh, the, the uh, blocking Today. lawsuit goes against him again... <laughs> Um, uh, they'll still be out there. And I think that's a, 
you know, the idea that we should keep tools for, uh, like empowering users out of the hands of users because, uh, people in power might personally misuse those tools, uh, it seems like, uh, misguided to me. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. I think the question is, you know, when we all have the expectations, we ran into Twitter and we started using Twitter with perhaps not thinking through what the implications of using Twitter would be. Um, I think that's what we're overall trying to talk about, where we all went ahead and created this permanent record without necessarily realizing what the effect of it would be. And now that we have some sense of what the effects are, what are the implications of reverse architecting it so that it would be the tool that we thought we would want. But at the same time, we might not all choose the same tool or choose the same value. And what does it do for, you know, retroactive changing history if some people want to reduce it and some people would prefer to leave it up because it's this record that we all, was this public record that we all share. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a good sort of uh, summary. So. I think I think I'm going to have to wrap this up. I know that we could go on and and we sort of started to dabble down like five or six different rabbit holes that we could have uh, or we could potentially do a full podcast on. Um, but this yeah, it took us 45 minutes to get to Garcia v. Google. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, Kathy always has that one ready to go. So <laughs> yes, I'm not denying it though. All right. It's in my history as part of that. Yes, yes. Um but but you know, I I think I think this is an important discussion and I think it's one that actually, you know, it's important to have and that that you know, while while some people are sort of recognizing it, but I don't I don't know that, that enough people are realizing it, but I don't I don't know that, that enough people are really beginning to think through in, in as thoughtful a way as, as they probably should. So hopefully um Hopefully this podcast helps people start to think about these things, and I'm sure we're going to continue to have these discussions for, for quite some time. Uh, but uh, I definitely want to thank uh, both you guys, Kathy and Parker, for uh, helping me think through some of it as well <laughs> and and having this uh, this discussion, which was, was definitely interesting and I'm sure will give us plenty of fodder for, for future podcasts. And uh, thanks to everyone who has been listening as well, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, guys. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get To grab a shovel and pick up the